0: This whole discussion about Lent has made for some really interesting conversations. Uh, I was talking to one of the ladies in our church and she said, Wow, it's great that the staff is taking this so seriously. And I said, Oh no, no, it's for everybody. And she goes, Oh. There's some other discussions that I heard. One, One was surrounding cinnamon buns. Is cinnamon bun a junk food? And the answer that I heard somebody say is, If it's for breakfast, no. If it's for snack, yes. On a Wednesday night, I think it was, my wife made pizza, and I'm not going to drink water with pizza. That's a sin. And so I grabbed a Coke, and my wife looked at me, and she goes, not this week you don't. So it's been quite the challenge. I hope you're up for it. For those of you who are in the room and you're thinking, oh man, I can give up streaming, I can give up TV, no problem. For those of you who like to play video games, that challenge extends this week as well. So embrace it as you will. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Luke. Thank you for Lent. Thank you for this time of preparation. And as we come together to hear from your word, may you be glorified. God, we pray that our minds would be open to hear what you want to say to each of us. And we also pray that my words would fall down, so that by the power of your spirit, you would speak to each and every one of us. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Have you ever been a part of something really special? Have you ever been a part of something where you thought, this is different than what I've done before. I think there's some potential here. Something is really going to take off. Maybe you've been a part of a band and you're thinking, you know what, we're, we're really good. We're not just working and playing in my mom's basement good. We're getting real gigs good. Maybe you've been a part of an organization where you think this new product that we're going to bring to market is special. This could be revolutionary. This could change the game. About 15 years ago, Steve Jobs stood on a platform not unlike this one and he said to everybody who was present, we are bringing three revolutionary things to market and there was kind of this pause. And he goes, one, we are bringing a widescreen touch screen iPod and the crowd went nuts. Two, he says, we are finally entering the mobile phone game and there's standing applause. And three, he says, we have a brand new internet device and people are like, "Uh, it's the internet. But then he kept repeating it. He said, a widescreen iPod, a phone, an internet device. And then he unveiled the brand new iPhone. And the crowd went crazy. If you've enjoyed reading biographies, the biography on Steve Jobs is excellent. And they talk about how he motivated people behind the scenes. And certainly he could be a little bit over the top at times where people said what was incredible is that he would talk to you and you would get enveloped into this reality distortion field and believe that anything was possible. And people would say, we can't have a touchscreen phone. That won't work. And he goes, but it will work. And they figured out how to make it happen. And people said, we felt like we were doing something special. We felt like we were making a dent in the universe, and it took a lot of hard work. You ever been there before? This is going to be special, but it's going to be hard. The band U2 is legendary for how much they practice. The 1990 Chicago Bulls, legendary for how hard they practiced on a regular basis. Something special is about to happen. We're in Luke chapter 9. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up. But there's something special about this passage. If you enjoy a little bit of Bible trivia, here it is. There's only two miracles that are the same in all four Gospels. The answer, the resurrection, and the feeding of the 5,000. But what makes this passage that if you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with, so important? We're gonna find out in just a bit. If you have your Bible with you, you can open them up to Luke chapter nine. If you have a tablet or a phone with you, I invite you to open that up as well. So far, um, Jesus' ministry is in the community around the Sea of Galilee, and he's talking to people about what it means to be uh, invited into the kingdom of God. He's, He's preaching, he's teaching, he's casting out demons, he's healing people, he's performing all sorts of miracles and people are infatuated with what's taking place. In chapter 8, over and over and over again is miracle after miracle after miracle. He casts out demons of, a peop- of somebody who is so enveloped by them that he can't be contained by chains. He calms a storm by simply telling it to be still. He raises a child from the dead, and people are amazed at what Jesus is doing. At the beginning of chapter 9, he looks at his disciples and he says, okay, you've seen me teach, you've seen me perform miracles, you've seen me heal people, now it's your turn to go and do it. So for the first few verses of chapter 9, it's the disciples going out and following in his footsteps. Then we arrive at chapter 9, verse 10. Here are the first two verses. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. If you missed last week, we looked at the parable of the sower. What makes the parable of the sower unique is it's one of very few parables that can be found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we took a very Luke-centered approach. Why is it where it is in the gospel of Luke? Well, here we have the feeding of the 5,000. But I don't just want to look at Luke's gospel. I want to look at what Matthew says, what Mark says, and what John says as well. And we're going to have an outline that's simple storytelling. It all starts by setting the scene. The disciples have just returned from their first personal ministry, and after months of following Jesus and listening to him and seeing him perform miracles, they go out and they start doing it themselves. You have, and If you have Luke in front of you, you can see in verse 6, the disciples departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. When they come back, they must have said to Jesus, Rabbi, Rabbi, we went around town and we talked about the ministry of what you were doing and people believe in you. They think it's real, you're the Messiah. Rabbi, Rabbi, we performed miracles in your name. We healed people in your name and people were coming to us. Rabbi, Rabbi, we cast demons out in your name. And Jesus, who must have been so proud of them at that point, said, well done, my disciples. Let's withdraw to a place so we can have some privacy together. And uh, Luke talks about how they just went to the town of Bethsaida and leaves it at that but Matthew goes a little bit more in depth when Jesus um, heard what had happened he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place Luke is not one of the 12 disciples Matthew is and Matthew probably remembers this scene very well we had come back we were exhausted and we just wanted to rest and relax and be with God ever been there? where it's been a long, hard stretch at work and you just think, I need a holiday. Maybe you went overseas and you were working um, with a different missionary organization and you saw God do amazing things, but when you came back, you just thought, I need a couple days before I go back to work. (laughs) Maybe you took your kids to the lake for an afternoon and you thought, oh man, at least two days to recover from that. When Luke says they withdrew to the town of Bethsaida, Matthew unpacks that and says, this is how difficult it was. The rest of Matthew says this. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from all the towns. Now this is some dedication. The people are literally running along the shore following the boats. And if you go, Dave, that that doesn't make any sense. Don't worry, I have a map. Here's what the map looks like. Now you'll find this map um, pretty helpful, I think. It's not just like Jesus took them from Magdala and went straight across the lake to Gergesa, a distance of about 12 kilometers Jesus' home base is in Capernaum. This is where um, he spent the time. This is where he almost certainly was when the 12 disciples went out. And they went from Capernaum to Bethsaida. So he's not going to go into the middle of the lake to do this. He's just going to kind of skirt along the shores. As you can see, the distance from Capernaum to Bethsaida is about 5 kilometers And even if the people couldn't keep pace with the boat, they would have looked ahead and said, Okay, we think he's landed in Bethsaida. Let's get there and see what happens. This is where it gets fascinating. Do you notice anything interesting about Bethsaida's location? The color of the map changes. So when you look at a map and you see the color change, what does that mean? It's a new province, it's a new territory. And there's going to be a new leader. Galilee is ruled by King Herod. Bethsaida is under the jurisdiction of King Philip. And Herod is no fan of the Jews. In fact, right before the feeding of the 5,000, both Matthew and Mark give this lengthy account of how Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. Luke doesn't talk about that, but in 7 through 10 we read, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed. It was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. So Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. And I promise you this, it wasn't to listen to Jesus, it was to go and kill him. You now, there's a group of freedom fighters called the Zealots who believe that the Messiah comes to overthrow the Roman government. But to make that happen, it's going to be best if they're outside of the jurisdiction of Herod. You want to take a wild guess at where they set up camp? Bethsaida. Bethsaida. So suddenly, this is a whole lot more interesting. Mark adds yet another layer to his account. In Mark 6:34. when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. This phrase, sheep without a shepherd, when we hear that in church, we think, well, it's a religious comment. It's about how a pastor kind of shepherds his flock, but it's also a political comment. Throughout the history of Israel, throughout the history of Judah, when we read the Old Testament regularly, whether it's David or Solomon or Josiah or Hezekiah or any of the other great kings, we are re- they are referred to as shepherds, either as good shepherds or as bad shepherds. Now remember, many of the Jews believed that the future Messiah would come and he would overthrow the Roman government. He would bring back the glory of David and Solomon that brought to Israel. So when Jesus headed over to Bethsaida, that crowd that was so eager to follow him probably thought, this is it! The revolution is about to begin! Things are going to change! This is where the Messiah says, I'm going to set up camp, I'm going to grab the zealots, let's go and take over Rome. And then Jesus arrives and it's completely different than what they expect. Now, we don't know exactly what he said. My guess is that it's probably uh, the Sermon on the Mount all over again. And he's looking at all these zealots and he's looking at all these people that are expecting some sort of revolution to take place and he's giving them a revolution, just not the one they thought they would hear. And he looks at them and he says, I don't want you to murder your enemies. I want you to love your enemies. In fact, I want you to go so far as to forgive your enemies for any harm they've done you. Because when you look at your enemy and you want them dead, that's as good as murdering them yourself. And you know, if you choose to marry, I want you to be committed to your spouse. Don't look other places. Don't look at other women or men. I want you to be committed to the partner that you have committed yourself to. Don't worry about taking back the land. I'm going to bring the kingdom of God. In fact, don't worry about anything at all. Just put your faith and your trust in me. Because on me, you will build a great and mighty kingdom. Picking up in verse 12. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Jesus, send the crowd away and go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people for there are about 5,000 who are present. We have the scene, we're presented with a problem. The disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, wrap it up, there's a lot of people here and we can't feed them all. And Jesus looks at them and says, do you know how revolutions start? We need a picnic. Go, see what you can find for me. Now remember, the text says that there's 5,000 men, but that doesn't keep into account all the women and children who are there. So probably 15 to 20,000 people. If you've ever been to an Oilers game, you ever watch a concert or a comedian at Rogers Place, they're feeding the entirety of the people that could fit in that Colosseum. Now, if we knew Jesus was coming, we'd probably pack a sandwich, pack a picnic, knowing that it's at least an hour there, who knows how long we'll be, and then it's an hour back. But Mark says in his Gospel, many who saw them leaving recognized and ran on foot to meet him there. There's no time to put a sandwich together. There's no time to get a picnic lunch. We want to be with Jesus. He's going to Bethsaida. Something great is going to happen. Now the disciples have obviously been to one of these Jesus conferences before and they know the best way to feed a group this size, give them a map of all the local restaurants. (laughs) And they can go and they can get pizza or they can get sandwiches or they can get steak or they can buy baklava. We don't want to care for all of these people. But Jesus doesn't let them off the hook. He looks his disciples in the eye and he says, You feed them. We don't see it here in Luke, but both Mark and John share how the disciples looked at Jesus and said, Are you crazy? It's going to take eight months of wages to feed all these people. How is that possible? It's only John's Gospel alone that says Peter came up to Jesus and says, here's a boy, five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? To which Jesus replies, bring me what you have. Bring me what you have. If you would have asked me a week ago, Dave, what are the two miracles that are the same in all four Gospels? I wouldn't have known the answer. I probably would have said, well, certainly the resurrection, and then I don't know, um, the transfiguration, healing of a leper, Jesus seems to do that a lot, but it's not. The two miracles that exist in all four Gospels are the feeding of the 5,000, and the resurrection will look at that in about four weeks. But then there's a follow-up question, right? Why the feeding of the 5,000? Of all the miracles that all the Gospel authors had at their disposal, why That one. Here's what I think the answer is it involves the disciples. Think about all of Jesus' other miracles. Pick just about any of them. Jesus calms the storm. Great. Jesus stands up and he says, Storm, be still. Jesus cleanses the lepers, okay? The leper walks up to him. Jesus reaches out and he touches him and the leper is healed. The blind man sees Jesus. Jesus spits on the ground, grabs the mud, puts it on his eyes, go wash and be healed. All of these miracles are Jesus and one other person. Jesus and the group of people he heals. Jesus and the storm. This one is different. Jesus looks at the 12 disciples and he says to them, bring me what you have. It's totally different. How often do you feel inadequate for that task? How do you think those disciples felt? Bring me what you have. Jesus, we told you what we have. We've got five loaves of bread and two fish. Bring me what you have. In the summer of 2020, succession planning here at Ellerslie was really starting to roll along. And Pastor Mel, the man who I have the privilege of succeeding, was talking to the Board of Elders and, they, and said to them, we need to talk seriously about a succession plan, and I, and I think that plan is Dave. I have a wonderful relationship with our board chair, but even as good as that relationship is, sometimes you think, well, how much do I share my insecurities? How much do I share with him what's really going on in my mind and in my heart? I can probably point exactly where we were on the sidewalk where I looked at Kurt and I said to him, are you sure I'm the right guy or am I just the only guy? Do you want to bring in a group of people and to have a regular interview process? And how many times do we feel inadequate for what's ahead of us? How many of you have been in the exact same situation I have and there's a job at work and you're asked to uh, um, go for us and you put in your resume and you get an interview and suddenly you think, I'm not sure I'm ready for this. I'm not sure I have the wisdom. I'm not sure I have the leadership to make that next step. You remember having your first baby. And you and your partner are excited about baby coming into your life and you you get ready and you have a crib and you buy a baby monitor and some of the things that you need around the house, but you think, are we ready for this? Do we know how to take care of this baby? Happens at church too. Someone looks at you and says, man, you would make a great small group leader. Would I? You would be a great member of our board. You know what? We're having a planning committee. We want you to be a part of it. And if you're thinking, I don't know if I'm adequate, then join the club. God gave Moses a rather large leadership assignment, and he asked him to go into the nation of Egypt and take the slaves of Egypt out from and in towards the promised land. Moses replies to God in Exodus chapter 3 verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And then God shows him miracle after miracle after miracle of God being at work fast forward a little bit and we have um, the prophet Samuel. Saul has just um, lost his blessing to be king over Israel. So Samuel says to God, well, who should I anoint next? And he goes, see the family of Jesse. And so he arrives at Jesse's house and he says, Jesse, I'm here to anoint the next king of Israel. Bring me all your sons. So Jesse lines up his kids and Samuel looks at all of them and God says, none of these are the men that I have next in store for Israel do you have any more children? And Jesse kind of laughs and he goes, yeah, I've got my youngest kid. He's kind of the runt of the litter, but you can go see him. And David gets called in. Samuel anoints him and he becomes the greatest king in Israel's history. Fast forward to the New Testament and we have the apostle Paul who is a very gifted man. But him crying out to God, he says, God, I don't know if I can do what you've called me to do. And God looks at him and he says, but my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus is looking at the 12 disciples and he's looking at you and he says, bring me what you have. Bring me what you have. Verse 14 He said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd and they all ate and were satisfied. What was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. You have your setting, you have your problem. As any good English student knows, you need a resolution. But before we get to the resolution, you have to deal with this whole idea of miracles. In this message alone, I've listed a number of miracles. Talked about the healing of lepers, the casting out of demons, the calming of the storm, raising people from the dead. I could go into much greater detail. The very conversation that I mentioned a minute ago was coming from a flaming bush when God spoke to Moses. But even if you don't believe in any of these miracles, they... Feel like they can be explained somehow. There was there was sleight of hand that took place, or or it was a natural phenomenon. At some point, you have to believe a miracle, and I'm not talking about Christians. Everybody has to believe in a miracle. The fastest rising group of uh, religion in North America. Do you know what it is? The nuns. And so when you fill out a survey, kind of like what we filled out just a few minutes ago, you go Christianity, you go Islam, you go Buddhism, you go Taoism, and you list them all, and then you have that last box, none. No religious affiliation whatsoever. And in North America, we're seeing a rise of the nuns, but even the rise of the nuns has to believe in some sort of miracle. How does creation start? How did this world come to be? I believe it's grade 10 science that teaches you, well, it's the Big Bang Theory. And this dust particle came together and eventually it imploded and uh, everything started to kind of form together. But that takes a matter of faith to believe that. Where did these particles come from? We're watching the bombing in the Ukraine. Things don't come together. Things get blown apart. So how did these uh, particles come together to become matter, to become plants, to become animals, to become humanity, to become trees and everything else? Set aside the rise of the nuns, what about Islam? Eventually, you have to believe that God spoke to the prophet Muhammad and the Quran came to place. If you're Hindu, you believe in the idea of reincarnation. If you're Buddhist, you believe in this idea of enlightenment. At some point, you have to believe a miracle. So why not this one? Why not believe that the God of the universe gave his one and only son to come down to earth on a rescue mission, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, and rose three days later. And during his ministry on earth, he performed many miracles, one of them being the multiplication of bread. And if the God of the universe has the power to speak matter into existence, to send his one and only son, to die on the cross and to rise three days later, surely he can take a few loaves of bread and multiply it to feed thousands. This past week I was studying. Unfortunately, I forgot to write down the author, but I love this quote. The miracles of Jesus are not exceptions to the natural order. They are a redemption of the natural order, pointing to the way it was originally intended. The feeding of the 5,000 is loaded with symbolism. You think of this idea of bread basically coming down from heaven. And so people would think about that great exodus when Israel came out of Egypt and was wandering around the desert for 40 years. And for 40 years, every morning, God gave them manna and said, this is the bread that I am giving unto you. The disciples would have also been aware of this immediate fulfillment that took place. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about how the blessed are those of you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And the disciples are watching this take place and how God is feeding all the thousands of people who are present. The crowd would have thought about the immediate context and recognized, here is Herod who is leading this big, big banquet, and he had brought in some entertainment and this girl danced beautifully, and in front of all of his guests, he said, what would you like? Up to half of my kingdom. It is totally yours. She runs and talks to her mom and her mom says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And those in the crowd are recognizing that Jesus is leading a much better banquet. A banquet in which he is giving of abundance and he is giving life and Herod is taking it away. When John describes the feeding of the 5,000, he says this shortly after the crowds go away. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. This meal looking ahead is also a picture of the future banquet. Back in the Exodus, there was just enough to get through the day. This banquet is going to have an abundance and be significantly more than all we could ever ask, hope, or imagine. As great as this miracle is, as deep and rich as it is in symbolism, Jesus did not keep it to himself he could have dramatically said everybody close your eyes we're going to bless this meal and as the crowd of 15 to twenty thousand close their eyes he prays for the food they open their eyes and suddenly there's bread and meat and a feast before them but he doesn't he looks to the disciples and he says bring me what you have and he looks at you, and he looks at me, and he says, bring me what you have. So what are you bringing to Jesus? And You might feel inadequate, and you might feel like, God, this isn't enough, and God is saying, oh, no, 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 that's the point. My grace is made sufficient in weakness. Bring me what you have, and I will turn it into a feast. Friends, are you gifted with hospitality? Bring it to Jesus. Are you a gifted teacher? Bring it to Jesus. Do you love working with youth or kids? Bring it to Jesus. Do you want to serve in the community by being a local hockey or baseball or soccer coach? Bring it to Jesus. Do you want to serve in the local community league or at at your work or at school? Bring it to Jesus. Jesus is saying, I will take it. I will multiply it. The greatest miracle that isn't the resurrection, the one that's mentioned in all four gospels, he's saying, let me work with you to do something great for the kingdom of God. Bring him what you have. You know, Pastor Joel was talking earlier about one of our strategic directions. How we want to become people of influence who invite, include, and invest. And this passage kind of leaves it open. What do you want to talk about, Pastor? What do you want to talk about, small group? What are you going to study when you're reading this Bible passage on your own? I want to talk about this. My prayer on a regular basis is that we would be an invitational church where it's our culture, where it's the very DNA of who we are, that we would invite people to see how great and awesome Jesus is. When we say that we would invite people into our homes, invite people to church, invite people to Alpha, invite people to see what God is doing in our lives and in this place. You might have noticed when you were filling out that survey, one of the very last questions is that idea of, do you feel comfortable inviting people and talking to people about Jesus? The reason that's there is because we want to know how to best equip you. Do you, know, do you need to know how? Is there something about the service that doesn't work? Or is there something that is preventing you, a barrier from inviting people to come and see Jesus? And if you're saying, Dave, I don't even know where to start, start Easter Sunday, It's about four weeks away. You can start praying for that person at work, at school, at family, in your neighborhood to hear the good news of Jesus. I'm going to preach just a tiny bit, but here's what's going to happen. We talked about having a baptism service on Easter Sunday. And there were a group of us in that planning meeting. and We thought, okay, hopefully we get four or five people. It'll be great news. We haven't even officially announced it until this very moment. We have 10 people plus who are saying, I want to get baptized Easter Sunday. And maybe you're out there and you're thinking, I want to get baptized Easter Sunday. Fill out a connect card. We'd love to have you baptized as well. Invite, include. Do you know what the two most important times are on Sunday mornings? It's not the opening of the service, (laughs) none of you are here. (laughs) It's not the opening of the sermon. It's the moment you walk in that door. Is this church friendly? Is this church warm? Is this church welcoming? Do I feel like I can make this church home? That's the one place. The second one, directly following the service. Will the people in this church talk to me? Will they love me? Will they ask me how my week is doing? Is this a place that I can connect with? And so I would encourage you, if you're a regular attender here, don't go immediately after the service ends and talk right away to your close friend. Talk to somebody beside you. How long have you been attending our church? How are you connected? What do you enjoy doing? What do you do for fun? That the warmth and love of Jesus would flow through us as a church. Vicki, I'm not sure if you're in the room or not. Vicki is our first impressions coordinator, and she has done a tremendous job. But we have this vision Where it's not just those people wearing a teal lanyard, but that everybody, we call it the foyer of a hundred, would be part of our first impressions team, loving people deeply. Maybe you are new to Ellerslie and you think, okay, this sounds good. I want to be a part of it. There's a connecting card in the pew rack in front of you. There's a connecting card that you can find online as well. Finally invest. I started this sermon by asking the question, have you ever been a part of something special? And there's something about what the church is doing here at Ellerslie, in South Edmonton and around the world. And to say, I don't just want to serve in some capacity. I want to financially support what's happening. I want to give to what's happening. I want to support the, what, the people in Ukraine. I want to support the pregnancy care center. I want to help out at the Hope Mission and to recognize there's something bigger than ourselves and that God is moving and that God is doing something special. A couple minutes ago, I mentioned the different symbolism from this passage, but I saved the best for last. Take another look at 9 verse 16. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. He broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. He looked up to heaven. He blessed and he broke. He looked up to heaven. He blessed and he broke. you know where else we see those two words? The last supper. Before spending time, uh, before the meal ended with the disciples, he blessed the bread and he broke it. Knowing that in a few hours he would be nailed to a cross or with arms outstretched to welcome the entire world, He blessed all of humanity by saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And his body broke. A picture, not just for 12 people, not just for 5,000 people, but for all of humanity. It's a total game changer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel of Luke. Thank you for the story that all four gospel authors tell. Thank you that it is a miracle that you are inviting us to be a part of with you. God, help us to bring what we have to serve in different capacities inside the church and outside the church, that the kingdom of God would grow because of your work in us, knowing that by your grace, our lives are transformed. Knowing by how you're at work within us, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God is being spread among our communities, our families, our workplaces, and our schools. Knowing that you are honored above all things. So God, fill us with your spirit, we pray. Amen.